0: Hi there, and welcome to this special episode of the Substack Podcast. I'm Dan Stone, I work in writer partnerships at Substack, and I'm thrilled to be speaking today with George Saunders, beloved fiction writer and all-around wonderful human. He's embarking on a really exciting new publication on Substack called Story Club, which can be found at georgesaunders.substack.com. As you probably know, George is an amazingly original moving writer of short stories, which he often publishes in The New Yorker and elsewhere. And he's collected them in a bunch of volumes like The 10th of December, In Civil Warland, and Bad Decline. And George has written other sorts of books, too, which we'll talk about later. Good morning, George. Welcome to the Substack Podcast.
1: How are things in California today? They're beautiful. Good to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Good. What are you seeing out your window? I'm seeing my uh, hillside uh, and a little to the left is where, the, uh, where I do my writing in a little shed up there. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice clear day, no rain, no mudslides, so everything's good. Nice, nice. Yeah, that shed,
0: I love the... The artwork that 's been done for your for your sub stack here, and I think tell me i didn 't get to track all of this, but you did a drawing of the shed and passed it on to the studio rescue vessel that worked on that. Tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah i 've got this shed about four years ago. Apollo was nice enough to let me put a little uh, it 's actually a tough shed that we had put up there, and if you can see the hill it 's impossible that they built it, but they somehow did so it 's just a little cell really and uh I kind of put all my my corny memorabilia up there, and my guitars and my amp, and uh, it's kind of just where I go to work. And it's you know it's up a pretty steep little incline, very beautiful spot. Mm-hmm. So I actually took a photo of it and sent it to a Rescue Vessel, and they incorporated it. But it's for me, it's like a really special. Um, it's sort of like a symbol of committing to my art. Like you know, we conspired to get it up there, and give me a little place to concentrate. And I wrote this last book up there entirely. And so it's connected with all kinds of good feelings of like, you know, kind of gathering yourself and concentrating and, and believing for that time that you're up there that, that writing really matters and you can you might be able to do some, some of it.
0: That's great. So I'm not sure if this was the first time we met, but this is the first time we did something together it was about four years ago at City Arts and Lectures. You had just published your novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. Um and we we met on stage and talked about it back then, but you know the original connective tissue between us is Tobias Wolf. I first met him when I was in still in college i My little sister was uh, good friends with his son. uh they went to school together. This was like hmm. almost you know like twenty more than twenty years ago. I had this memory of him walking into the graduation after party in what I identified as a safari hat. And, you know, it's, of course, his, <laughs> his mustache. And it was this, uh, he was the first writer who I'd, you know, read a book of that I actually met in person. And it was very intimidating. Obviously he's not an intimidating person. He's incredibly sweet. Tell me about Toby. You studied with him and you,
1: you later ended up teaching at, at Syracuse, uh, where you still teach. Right. Yeah, my my first encounter with, with Toby was I had applied to the program and I was living out in Amarillo, Texas, in my mom's house, mom and dad's house. And uh I think I was working maybe as a at a, at a apartment complex as a landscaper or maybe at a slaughterhouse. Nothing, you know, nothing uplifting. And I sent the applications off and kind of forgot about it. And uh I came home and my dad said, "You know, some guy Tobias Wolf called you." And it was just like you said I'd never met a writer a published writer before and i had his book on my you know but beside my bed uh, back in yeah. the world so the idea that he you know that there was a personal connection between us, that he had called on my phone it was just mind-blowing so i um you know called him back nervously and as i remembered i was i took the you know it was it was an old landline so i took the the cord with me into this little bathroom mm-hmm. so i could have some peace and i just ranted about my dreams and how uh <laughs> You know, I was going to take over the world. And did he listen to music while he wrote? And it was really uh, retrospectively very embarrassing. (laughs) But he is the sweetest person alive. And he, you know, he he tolerated it. And then uh, I I went out to Syracuse the next fall and met him. And it's just, he's just been a huge influence in my life, as I think he has been in so many people's lives with his, uh, you know, his kindness and his patience and also his... You know, laser-like mind about about short stories. I remember when we, one years later, when I was teaching alongside him, uh, we would do our application procedure at Syracuse, which, you know, it involves reading hundreds of stories. These days, about seven hundred, in a very compressed period in January and February, and it's just uh more stories than you want to read it's just two you're reading maybe you know maybe 100 stories a day if you're really clipping you know if or at least Mm. sampling in 100 so anyway we're doing that and uh arthur flowers and i just started and we were just blown away but how we how do we do this it seems impossible i'm sure we were scanning a bit and we were reading just the first few pages and just trying to keep up with toby and uh at one point there was somebody that everybody had agreed wasn't going to make the cut and we were going to have to reject the person uh and somehow the name came up and Toby said oh yes you know that wasn't that probably wasn't for us but on page 17 or 18 there was a lovely image of a sailboat (laughs) and (laughs) Arthur and I just sat there like what are you you know it it was so impressive and also so caring you know he, he didn't um never never an unkind word for the people he was rejecting he understood that they were part of this project and he had a lot of affection for their for the effort yeah yeah So
0: you and I have spoken before about his influence on you as a writer and just your friendship and how important that's been. But in what ways did he, uh, this sort of will tie back to what you're planning to do here on Substack. In what ways did Toby inspire your journey towards teaching?
1: Well, you know, I I was, as you were asking that question, the word seriousness came to mind. And what I mean by that is Toby has a way of making you feel like your work is at least potentially important. It's certainly important to him when he's reviewing it with you. I remember going into workshop and there was just a certain mood would fall over the room with the seven of us in there that was kind of like, okay, the world might not believe it, but we believe that the short story is the most expressive form in the world and we're going to take it very seriously for this for this period. I remember one time we, we, were, we were in workshop and in this building at Syracuse called the Hall of Languages, beautiful old building. Mm-hmm. And upstairs, there's a big sort of a common room uh, called the Killian Room. So we we're in workshop and we're, you know, it's, it's pretty intense and everybody's concentrating. And then in the distance, we hear this boom, boom, ch, boom, boom, ch, and it kind of footfalls and real loud and kind of distracting. So it becomes clear, somebody runs up and checks and it's the Syracuse University cheerleading squad up there. <laughs> who are very important. I mean, they're, they're certainly, you know, in our minds, they're like more uh, like celebrities than anybody, any of, right, of, right. of us are. Uh, so we think, okay, well, we just have to tolerate it, you know? Well, so this goes on a while and I, we can sort of see Toby getting a little bit fed up with it. So at one point he stands up and in that beautiful characteristic voice, he says, excuse me, I'll be right back. <laughs> and he goes up and we're like, uh-oh, Professor Wolf's in trouble. He's taking on the, <laughs> you know, the cheerleading <laughs> squad. And a couple minutes later, it goes quiet and they leave. We, we hear him in the stairwell passing, you know, and he comes back in and he just sits down and he goes, all right, let's get back to it. <laughs> so to me, that was a beautiful example of somebody who just believes in what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, and so he, and he had also, you know, uh, we always felt um, a kind of a reverence for us, but it wasn't, and this is important. It wasn't an overindulgent reverence. Uh, if you did something that wasn't that good, he would just tell you, which, you know, you feel as a form of care also, right. although it's hard at the time. So there was, there was a sense that he wasn't, he, he was nurturing us by challenging us. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he wasn't pretending that this wasn't a difficult life or that the, that, you know, the little doorway down there marked publishing was a big doorway, but he was taking you seriously. And I think that's the part that has really stayed with me. Uh, every time I sit down with a group of students, I'm like, okay, you don't know who these people are. So let's err on the, on the side of thinking these are our future great writers and let's, treat them accordingly. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you later came to teach at Syracuse. Did you and Toby overlap there? I know he left around that time to go to Stanford. Did you both teach the program for a while
1: together? We did. There was one, about one year overlap. Okay. Yeah. Which was a very wonderful, wonderful year. And then, um, it i can't remember the sequence but we ended up buying his house so right, so right. we lived on scott avenue for the whole time that we were there and we raised our kids in that house so we go you know we down in the basement there was a, some stuff that his kids had done like a, a scrawling on the world and it said down with the republicans and it was very <laughs> and then we on, on the uh, the door frame where the the places where they had marked the heights of their children which we left yeah. in place for many many years so yeah he's a dear friend and katherine and l is a dear friend and Oh, they're both wonderful, and yeah,
0: Patrick is is the the saxophone player is just amazing. He's the one who's good friends with my little sister, and we've remained friends with him. He's great. He's probably the one who scrawled down
1: with the Republicans on the wall. Probably, although I think Michael might have helped. But also, our kids went to the same to MPH. where, oh, okay. where yeah. The Wolf kids went. So it was- yeah,
0: that's where my sister went too. That's great. So your experience as a teacher. Inspired and informed, this latest book that you published—I think it was earlier this year in 2021—*A Swim in the Pond in the Rain*, and that's that also ties in with what you're planning to do here on Substack. Tell us a bit about that book and and how it came about.
1: Yeah, well, so I had I taken some time off to tour uh, for Lincoln and the Bardo, and and so then one of the first couple of times I was back in the classroom, you know, the the classroom cleared out, and you're kind of in there and a little little buzz with the the energy of it and and it just occurred to me how much teaching had meant to me over the years. You know, when you, when you first start out as a writer slash teacher, you're, the writer is in capital letters and the teacher is in small letters. But over the years, you know, you you see that your work, your writing work, it comes and goes, it it probably won't last, you know, and so on. But the teaching is, is sort of um, as close as you can get to being permanent in the sense that you, you know, you alter somebody's trajectory, uh, Mm -hmm. as a writer, hopefully as a person. So I was, I was just kind of feeling newly, um, appreciative of the opportunity I'd had to teach all those years. And in particular, I I used to teach this, uh, Russian classes, the, the Russian short story and translation. And that was always the best class I taught. It was, it just was, uh, you know, to have 18 or 20 young writers in there hungry for craft, hungry to figure out how to make their stories better. And, uh, this handful of Russian stories that I ended up working with was, they they cause these sort of explosively useful conversations in the classroom. And Mm -hmm. um, I always looked forward to teaching that class. So as I stood there, I thought, you know, I mean, not in a a morbid way, although maybe a little, I thought, you know, I am sort of a collection of all the wisdom that all those students have imparted over those 20 years. And a collection of all the different times I've read these stories Mm, and different moods and different things I've, I've thought about them. And I thought, yeah, you know, so when I'm done with this life, that's gone. Uh, And I just felt a little miffed at that, like, you know, know, it seems like that should find a repository. So I kind of casually suggested to Andy Ward, my editor at Random House, that I might want to write a book about the Russians. And he agreed. And then sometime later I started up in the the shed. And um, yeah, so that was, and it was a beautiful, surprisingly beautiful experience. At first I thought, okay, I'll just discharge this and, you know, basically type up my notes. But uh, literature won't, you know, tends to not like us to phone stuff in. So I uh, <laughs> got drawn in and spent a couple of years just rereading what turned out to be seven stories over and over, and rewriting my essays on them over and over. And instead of feeling frustrating, it felt so deep, you know, mm-hmm. and gratifying. And um, the world was going crazy at that time, as it still is. But I found that when I was up there in the shed, just giving myself a little bit of a break and saying, all right, for these hours, uh, let's give ourselves permission to just lower ourselves into Chekhov. Just try to understand this one story, you know? yeah, It always left me feeling more peaceful and powerful and at least a little bit stable so that when I went back to life, I wasn't so pissed off and and flummoxed and frustrated. So that was fun. Uh, And the book came out and then a really incredible thing happened was that Emails started flooding in people Mm -hmm. who had read the book, and some were just saying we liked it, some were saying we didn't like it. But unlike most of the books I I had published, this the response to this one wasn't thumbs up, thumbs down, it was like we want to play, you know, Mm -hmm. I think you got it right about Alyosha, but blah blah blah, or uh, yes, you missed one element in Gooseberries, or (laughs) and and even more movingly, things like, um, you know, I, I didn't think I'd be able to get into this, but I loved it. And it got me through a difficult period or, you know, I, I used to like stories when I was younger, but I kind of got out of the habit. You got me back into the habit or maybe the best were I always hated short stories or I always hated Turgenev or I always, you know, had no taste for the Russians, but something switched on in me. And I, and now I'm reading them all the time. And that was, you know, an energy that was very much like what I'd felt in the classroom that, you know, it's not about me being fancy or dazzling or showing off or anything. It's about me sort of getting out of the way and saying and doing whatever helps the student to get where they need to be. And I somehow at this stage in my life, that kind of a little bit of self-subtraction from the process is really appealing. Mm -hmm. So, but then the book was done, you know, and then we got, you got in touch with me very nicely and I thought, oh yeah, that would be fun to continue that process in part because it had, you know, weirdly and and unexpectedly, it had really helped my fiction writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I I've had this incredible burst of productivity after, after the book was done. So there's a selfish component for sure.
0: Right, right. Yeah. You were one of the first people I called when I started working at Substack more than a year ago. One of the first writers I called to suggest that you mm. might consider doing something on the platform. And it's been many month, months in the making, but finally here we are as you were finishing a collection of stories. So, to to sort of like move that to the next level here, what's the basic idea of Story Club, which is what your your publication here on Substack is going to be called? It's essentially designed kind of in the image of a swim in the pond in the rain. How do you imagine it'll, it will be arranged on Substack? Like, what what sort of experience will people have?
1: I think you know, I am kind of I've thought a little bit about the the MFA world and how you know it's it's kind of uh, restricted. You know that we we get seven hundred applications and let let six people come. So there are people who, uh, you know, the the seventh person, for example, is really no less ready than the sixth. I mean, just, you know, Mm -hmm. or or there are people whose lives, uh, you know, aren't aren't set up to go somewhere and be in an MFA program. They have families or they have jobs. Uh, There are also people who, for whatever reason, aren't um, writing at a level that would get them into an MFA program, but are still good writers or are still dedicated writers. So I I love the idea of kind of uh, simulating a version of an MFA life through Substack. So I think the spine as I see it is gonna be picking some of the great stories and giving them the treatment that I gave in the Russian book, which is to say primarily a technical treatment. So we're in that book, I'm kind of stepping through the stories. And the main question is, okay, what do you feel as a reader at this point in the story? you know, page six, paragraph nine, where are you? And this uh, is important because that's really all the story is, you know? You you read a sentence, you like it enough to read the next one and so on and so on. And cumulatively, all these wonderful things that we associate with stories happen, you know, theme happens in politics and emotion and transformation, but it only happens a line at a time. Mm -hmm. And so what I tell my students is it's fundamentally a technical process that results in a mystical experience. So I think what I want to do is as a spine of, of, story club is just work through maybe, you know, a story a month uh, as one feature where I'll send out a, a section of a story, ask the uh, the participants to read it, and then I'll discuss it. Uh, I also think there'll be some sidebars, you know, there are all kinds of things that come up in an, a class. So for example, talking about the, um, obstructions, Mm -hmm. talking about the difficulty of ending stories, uh, talking about fostering a creative mindset, all these things that might come up very naturally in the course of a class. I'd like to write some short essays about that. And then one of the exciting things for me is I think I'm going to be able to kind of open the vaults and find examples uh, of early drafts of stories of mine. And not that they're particularly great stories, but I have access to the the dirt, you know? Right. right. So um, to pull some of those out and, and send them and say, well, you know, let's talk about, we always talk about editing and revising. What does that mean exactly? At, at what pace does it occur? Mm-hmm. Are there big breakthrough moments? Why did you cut that paragraph right there, George? So uh, that is exciting to me because really that's what I know. I, you know, I, I know how to take my particular sloppy first draft prose. and and gradually convert it into something that might get published. And I think that in in teaching at Syracuse, that's one thing that's really always been of interest to students is when you sort of lower the veil and say, look, let's put aside the lofty language and let's talk about the actual day-to-day business of how you make your writing better. So I think that's that's sort of my plan. And, you know, really what I guess is I'd, I'd love to sort of make a community... Like the one that responded to that Russian book, absolutely, mostly by email, but make an, a, an active, uh, interactive community. And, um, you know, I don't do social media because I really don't like it, but I this strikes me as something like potentially like social media with a conscience because we're all self selected. You know, this is a, a club based on mutual respect, mm-hmm. uh, and also the things I'm going to be offering because of the way subject works, I'll have time to edit them and revise them. It's not just, you know, dashing something off at the top of my head, which which uh, appeals to me as a writer. I know I'm smarter after draft nine, you know, and, yeah. and I, I'd like to put that best foot forward. Definitely.
0: Yeah, and I love that idea about, about this being, in a certain sense, uh, democratizing the MFA program, which is by its nature so exclusive. Of course, without things like line edits and close workshopping of stories, although... You and I have talked a bit, and I have some ideas that we'll discuss about how you might be able to emulate some of that, or or rather how your community might be able to kind of build that in parallel with what you're doing on Story Club. Mm-hmm. So we we should talk about that too. Another, you know, there's sort of like obvious appeal to people who are writing fiction or learning to write fiction to be part of this. But what would you say, George? is the value of something like this, of closely reading short stories, of slowing down to discuss fiction and, you know, even fiction from another time. What's the value of that for, for
1: non-writers, for just readers? What does it give to us? Yeah, that was a surprising part of the responses that I got so many uh, letters and emails from people who said, I'm not a writer. I don't want to be, but wow, this book really helped me. Helped them, one, to become better readers, to become You know, sometimes people think if you analyze a story, you ruin it, but actually the opposite is true. If you learn to read analytically and read like a writer, a story will often open up additional things to you that had been hidden. But I also think uh, this is kind of a hard idea to express, but we're finding out, I think, through all this uh, partisan mayhem that we're going through right now, that it actually matters how you get information because that affects the way you think. So when you're getting your information information that's coming off the top of somebody's head, hasn't been revised, is uh, sort of designed to agitate, uh, to, you know, to draw likes and dis- simple, mm-hmm. facile mm-hmm. likes and dislikes, designed to put you in a certain camp. Uh, I think that that then affects the way that your brain works. I mean, it does for me, even just a little bit of time on news, you know, makes me a, a lesser and more yeah. agitated person. So I, th- I think this is something I've been talking to people about on email is that if we immerse ourselves in something like a short story, which is written slowly and carefully with a lot of attention, with a lot of love, it does something to our wiring. And particularly when we go to try to imagine the lives of other people in the real world, mm-hmm. you know, it, it trains us in a certain kind of holy hesitance, you know, to say, well, this person looks like someone I don't like, but they have a story, let me novelize them a bit in my mind in a generous way, as opposed to a sort of social media way. So I think it's it's got benefits to go way beyond trying to write your own fiction. Yeah, And I'll, I'll be, I think I'll be writing about that because it's interesting to me that I, I have a feeling that a lot of the crisis we're in has to do with the medium, you know, as uh, to paraphrase Marshall McLuhan, the, the medium is a message. The medium is actually a, a brain forming device And uh, the short story is a way to kind of, I would say to train ourselves into a certain kind of alertness, both to the language of the story, but also to the the greater world outside. So it's something it's a very, this is very alive for me right now, and I'm sure that'll make its way into the story club. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: I mean, we we often think about Substack as a place where a, a very quiet space, especially compared to social media, where it's sort of away from that noise and away from the game of the attention economy. So in a certain sense, it seems like a good fit for you to build this project and, and the community around it um, where you can, you know, like you said, it's self-selected. When you and I first spoke about Substack, you said something on that call when we were sort of like collectively kind of forming a definition of what Substack is. And uh, the line that you, you you kind of mentioned a version of it earlier was that that it was like social media purified by conscience. I love that I love that verb "purified" in in talking about this. Any anything else you want to say about that? That's sort of like a a, a real foundational idea for us, and it's um, I love the way you've, you you uh, articulated it.
1: Yeah, well, I, I like the idea that you know it seems like the pace is dictated by me, so there's a, a chance for me to you know be careful about what I'm saying and be uh, revise these things up into real intelligence and and then offer them. And I also like that I'm offering them to a group of people who self-selected to be there. That's important to me. So to me, it was—it's a little bit like um, you know—to write this Russian book. I had to teach these stories for a long time, and you—in teaching, you're finding out what's working, what's not. It's—you're kind of improvising the class every time based on certain notes. I, I love the idea of offering these teachings to a group of people who are on my side, you know, who are positively inclined, and then from the feedbacks. Being able to go, oh, that that worked. Mm-hmm. I should do that differently. So, in a certain way, it's it's sort of like a a modeling of the kind of teaching I did at Syracuse. And I think that for me, the the, the danger of, of social media is just that you're always feeling the pressure to say something right now. And with Substack, if I if I get organized enough, which I'm going to, uh, <laughs> it, it means that I can be starting something now. And when it's ready, you know, when it really has something to say, then I can release it to this self-selected community. And, mm-hmm. and that that's exciting to me because I saw how with the Russian book, it really helped my thinking, mm-hmm. it, you know, it helped my thinking to, to be able to anticipate a really smart audience and then try to try to communicate with them.
0: Yeah. It's a space where you and your audience can be a little more thoughtful and reflective rather than, you know, reactionary, which is what we're so accustomed to now with, with social media. You know, the structure of this, the way that we've talked about it, of course, this may change, is that you'll basically focus on a story each month with your community of readers around Story Club. So without spoiling any surprises, could you give us a glimpse or a hint of which writers to expect this year? Who do you have in mind? And and also, I'm curious too, what's your criteria in selecting a
1: story to feature? Right. So I'm really interested in in stories that aren't 50 pages long you know the six or seven or eight pages or mainly because they're they make great little teaching artifacts you can you literally can step through them a page at a time and and really be in touch with the line to line progress i've got a few russians in mind that i didn't cover in the book so isaac bobble is one uh maybe daniel harms that's that's a difficult one but maybe him some other stories by Chekhov and Tolstoy that didn't fit into the book, actually. Uh, Hemingway, is is his early stories are really useful for teaching purposes. Some maybe lesser known writer, Gina Berrialt, comes to mind, somebody who's a, an amazing writer, who I think was a little underappreciated in her, her time. I expect we'll, we'll get to Tobias wolf at some point because he's a master. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I, at Syracuse that happens is you can have a syllabus and it's really good to keep it a little loose. Because you don't know who you're going to have in the class, and you want to respond to their energy. Right, so Right. I've got this kind of uh, metaphorical bag of stories at the ready, and if I go in and the class seems to be having this obstruction uh, or this curiosity, I'll kind of scan that bag and pull something out. So I think I'm gonna, I'm leaving it a little bit open for myself to see what the community wants, what the community responds to. You know, sometimes you'll you'll um, read a certain story and you'll kind of lurch over into the topic of endings. Mm-hmm. Well, then suddenly there are three or four stories that you really want to look at in that category. So I'm, I'm really excited about the sort of um, spontaneous nature of this. And the fact that I can keep track on everybody in real time a little bit, then it, just as I do in, in real teaching and at Syracuse, uh, tailor the next class to kind of, you know, to, to meet what, what they need. So I think we'll see stories from all over the world. I'm sure we'll get to some fairy tales. Uh, in class, I often will use bits of movies and TV because that's a really interesting form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the sky's the limit at this point. Yeah, no, that's great.
0: That's so exciting.
1: So besides Story Club, what other things are you planning to do on Substack? Yeah, well, the other thing that I'm kind of excited about is I've had a, a newsletter through Random House for the last few years, and uh, it's been really nice every so often to just say okay here's where i am in the world here's what i'm doing here's a thought i just had this morning here's a picture of this uh you know here's a song i just recorded or whatever so i do recognize that even though i you know i always talk down social media there's some beautiful aspects to it so this idea of being in some kind of real-time quasi-personal touch with my readers is really exciting to me so for sure, there'll be that aspect of it every now and then, just kind of a an update on you know if something new is coming out or there's some TV or movie stuff that's happening. I, I also want to do something where uh, you know I spend a lot of time on email answering questions from readers and writers, and I really enjoy that. So I hope that we'll we'll work that into so that if uh, somebody is uh, has a certain question about craft or the writing life, we could. Um, they could send it to me and I'll answer it uh, in the public forum. Yeah. Yeah, that's about it, I think. Um, no, I was going to say, you know, when 10th of December came out and then Lincoln came out, I did so uh, much touring and, you know, re- doing readings at bookstores and at different events. And um, the fun part of that is at the end, you sit down at the table and this is all pre-COVID and you you, you sign books. And I always tried to, you know, spend some time and, and at least, you know, have a moment with each person. That was such a beneficial thing because- You know, all of us tend to project fearfully, I guess. You know, you're sitting at home writing, you're like, somebody's going to hate this or somebody's going to nail me. Doing those uh, book signing things, you start to learn who your audience actually is Mm. and how nice they are and how much they're rooting for you or they wouldn't be there. So I think I'm sort of imagining that Story Club might be a bit like that to sort of have a conduit between my readers and myself and, um, you know, selfishly be reminded that these are really interesting, smart (laughs) Uh, goodwill people, uh, and going in the other direction to try to say, you know, this writing life is not impossible. There, there are real people on the other end of books. It's all about communication, and it and it goes in both directions. So I think part of what I offer my students, I think, is sort of a demystification of the whole thing. Like, yeah, it's really hard. It's it takes everything you have. It it obsesses you in every aspect of your life, but it's also not impossible, and mm-hmm. it's a continuation of something you've been doing your whole life, which is trying to engage other people in your particular mode. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I joke with my students that we're trying to basically refine our charm. Like how are we charming and how can we get more so <laughs> in prose? Sometimes I think the best thing a writing teacher offers is a little bit of positive reassurance. Yeah. Just to say, it's not impossible. You can improve. And finally, maybe the most important thing is to say that when you really get down to it, publishing is kind of a, a nice cherry that comes, you know, on top of the ice cream. Yeah. But the ice cream is the day-to-day work of trying to see, you know, can I be more lucid and more truthful in, uh, in my prose? And so that's kind of the real baseline ethos of Story Club is that that idea that we can we can all participate in it and it will make any life better.
0: Oh, that's great! Well, George, I'm so excited about this. I'm absolutely going to subscribe, and everyone listening here should do the same which is at georgesaunders.substack.com. Story Club launches today on December 2nd, 2021. You've been listening to the Substack Podcast with George Saunders and Dan Stone. George, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Dan, thank you.